Hello and welcome to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, Art, and Happy New Year, everyone. Well, we've reached the end of 2021 and have just started 2022. I feel like we've, perhaps many of us, had the same thought last year, but there's something about a new year that that gets you ready for just a fun new year. Last year, we were hoping that 2021 would be a good year, and it sure has seen its shares of ups and downs. I'm hoping that the pandemic will settle down. I know some people that are coming into this year with heavy hearts, and I hope that this year brings nothing but the best for you. For my podcast, it has continued to grow, and I've been so grateful for that. Many of you have donated generously to support the show financially, as well as sharing on your social media accounts and subscribing where you can and uh, leaving a rating and review where you can. And that's been so helpful. People continue to find the show and I, it's because of you folks getting the word out of all the things that I am most thankful for this year, uh, the interaction I've had with you, my listeners, and this wonderful community has just meant the most to me. So thank you for that. I sure had some fun episodes this year, and I like to always look at the stats. I'm, I, I think stats are really interesting. So my most downloaded episode this year is the one from October 31st called Is That You, Santa Claus? I'm not entirely sure why, to be honest. Uh, I had didn't have any any guests on that episode. I I shared a listener memory, and then I read the story "Old Father Christmas" by Juliana Horatia Ewing, and tell and then again it, that tells the story of two small children who think a local elderly man they meet near their house might just be Father Christmas or uh, Santa Claus. But. Uh, I love that story, and I'm really grateful that that's and that's the episode that everyone downloaded the most this year. Coming in a close second was the first part of a Christmas Carol that I read during the month of December, and uh, I am really thankful for that. Uh, for people uh, jumping in and listening to that story, and I hope you enjoyed it. All all five parts are now out, and you can listen to those on the podcast feed. And then the third most downloaded episode from this year is the episode entitled The Most Precious Gift is the Time We Have with Each Other. And on that one, I share a, a listener memory again from Katie, who shares a memory of spending Christmas 2010 with her niece who had leukemia. I also interviewed author Ed Daly on that episode and shared some tips about how to celebrate the holidays after a loved one has passed away. And I've actually gotten quite a bit of feedback from that show, uh, well, all, all positive. And I'm very grateful for that. I'm glad that that has resonated with people who might be uh, hurting this time of year. So thank you again, just for everyone for listening, for subscribing, for being a part of this community. And I say it all the time, but I just cannot wait for what's to come. So here's what I would love to do. If you have been listening this year and have enjoyed it, 
if you have made a donation, if you have bought something through the Etsy store or um, left a rating and review, uh, if you just think you have an opinion, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I want to hear from you, from the listeners. Give me some topic ideas for this coming year. Please let me know. You can email me at cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on any of the social medias, uh, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, um, Instagram. I'm on all those. I would love to hear from you what you would like me to cover this, this coming year. So you can give me a topic idea that, uh, such as one of your favorite books or a favorite movie you have or some music you want me to talk about, um, a, a holiday tradition. I can talk about that. Also, if there's a, an old Christmas story that you would like me to read on the podcast that I may not have been aware of, let me know about that. Uh, and I would be happy to read that for you on the podcast. What I'm hoping for is, is to be able to involve you more in the community and in the planning of these episodes. So I'd love to hear from you as well as sharing with me your your favorite Christmas memories or traditions. Uh, I, I want to, of course, keep doing that. But this will be a further way that you all can have a bigger part in the episodes that are to come. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing from you about this, uh, you know, because I have things I like and I like to talk about and all that. Um, but sometimes it's good to branch out a bit and get some more opinions in. But not to worry if nobody writes in. I've got plenty to talk about uh, between here and next Christmas. But I, I just thought it'd be fun to open up the process to you all and uh, see what you have and see what you're thinking you'd like me to cover. Now, there's going to be another way you can we can help continue to build our community and give us uh, opportunities to talk about things. And I came up with a cozy Christmas book reading challenge. I've got 12 reading prompts for us to read throughout the year, one for every month. So we're going to start this month with January. Okay, so what I did is I wrote out 12 different Christmas movies or stories that not necessarily are my favorites, but they reflect many of your favorites. And then I came up with a reading prompt based on that movie title. Let me read you these prompts in these challenges. And each month we're going to tackle one of these prompts. And then I thought every Wednesday on the social medias, primarily on Facebook, but I know not everyone's on Facebook, but every Wednesday we will, uh, we can get online and share what we're reading. And if we're reading something with the prompt or at the very least make book recommendations for that prompt. So you can read whatever you want. We'll chat about it online. So let me read you the 12 reading prompts for uh, the Cozy Christmas Book Reading Challenge. So our challenge then is to read 12 books, which for me is no problem. I sometimes read 12 books in a month, but this will be a slower rate and uh, will be more, I think, helpful to people who might not have as much time to read. And I do want to say audiobooks count, short stories count, novellas count, you know, as long as you're reading something I think is, is the, the point of this. So anyway, here's the prompts. First of all is the Santa Claus. Uh, read a book about family. The second prompt is the Grinch. Read a book that involves a redemption of an unlikable main character. 
The third reading prompt is Home Alone. Read a book where the main character has to overcome challenges on his own or on her own. Uh, reading prompt four is the Hallmark Christmas Challenge. Read a cozy story. It could be a cozy mystery. It could be a cozy romance, a rom-com, something that to you just says cozy. Number five is A Christmas Story. Now, as you know, that's a film I don't particularly care for, but I know many of you love it, so I wanted to add it onto here. And the challenge for that is read a book or author that you hate to try and give it a second chance. <laughs> now, that has little to do with the story and more to do with my relationship to that story, but I couldn't resist. Uh, but I, I think... I think that would be a good challenge for that one. Challenge number six is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, read a scary book. Uh, number seven is Christmas Vacation. And that prompt is read a book that makes you laugh. Reading prompt number eight is Miracle on 34th Street. Read a book about faith or read a book that's a retelling of a story. And I say that because I think faith is part of that story of Miracle on 34th Street uh, because people are facing the challenge uh, or facing this. Do we have do we believe in Santa Claus or not? Is this man Santa or not? You know, that's at the heart of the story. But I understand that faith is sometimes a very personal subject in and a complicated one at times. So I would also say an, a substitute for that would be to read a story that has a, to read a retelling of a classic story because there is a, a remake of a miracle on 40, 34th street that I actually like better than the original, but I'm a weirdo like that. So that's reading prompt number eight. Number nine is a Christmas Carol. Read a classic book. Number 10 is The Polar Express. Read a book about travel. Uh, number 11 is It's a Wonderful Life. Reread an old favorite. And then number 12 is Elf. Read a holiday book. It can be a Christmas book, uh, some book that's centered on the holidays or a holiday. Now, you get bonus points if for every book that you read, that's also a Christmas book. Um, so you can reread an old favorite. That's an old, that's also a Christmas book. You could read a scary book. That's also a Christmas book and you get a bonus point. And of course the points mean nothing uh, other than having bragging rights. No worries there if you can't keep up or if you have to skip a month or if the prompt, you just can't find anything. That's fine. You can participate with as much as you have time for. You can get all 12 done in one month. That would sound, that would be pretty intense, but I think it's possible. Uh, or you could just do one a month. So I'll be leading discussions over on my Facebook page and other social media accounts. So I hope that all makes sense to you. I might rearrange the order we do these in. For instance, I have plans to talk about the Polar Express probably in March. So I might move the Polar Express challenge up to that. I mean, these are really in no particular order of importance. Just be aware of that. 
So the first reading prompt we're going to do together this month is the Santa Claus reading challenge to read a book about family. It can be a book uh, about found family, about uh, blood related family. It can be, um, you know, whatever, you know, this is, there's no hard and fast rules here. Um, you can stretch the definition if you want. That's perfectly fine. So I would love to know what you would, you are reading uh, for this prompt. And I had hoped to find a book ready to go today to tell you what I'd be reading, but I, I really haven't found one yet. So stay tuned. Uh, I will post something on Wednesday. I will uh, let you all know what I'll be reading and we can chat about books, maybe a book you're reading for the prompt or that you're going to read for the prompt, or just maybe one of your favorite books that has to do with, with family. And so I think it'll be very fun to just to find out what we're all reading. The books I pick for this reading, I will make a vlog about on the YouTube channel. I'll keep doing the cozy book corner once a month. And not so not only will I, sh I share some of the Christmas books I've read that month, but each month I'll talk about a little more in detail about the book I chose to read for that challenge um, and discuss it there. So you know, so that's of interest to you. You can watch the video that will be out uh, probably at the end of every month. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> uh, as you know, life gets busy, life gets crazy. I'll do what I can to be consistent at it. But, you know, I just appreciate you all, you know, knowing that sometimes life happens and things we plan just can't happen. You understand that. And I appreciate that. For the story today, I wanted to end the year with another Charles Dickens story. This one is more of a reflection. I love our Christmas tree. Now, if I were to ask you to describe your Christmas tree, most of you could probably do it in just a couple of sentences. Mine is, it's an artificial tree. It's green. It has white lights on it. It's covered in ornaments that many of them have special memories tied to our family's history and experiences and vacations and things like that. It's, I think, a very cozy looking Christmas tree. Well, of course, Charles Dickens could not d just describe his Christmas tree in simple detail. No, no. He takes about 45 minutes. I don't know how many pages, 20, 30 pages to describe his Christmas tree. It's kind of a strange reflection, but I think I really like it because he talks about the ornaments and he talks about each part of the tree and he uses it as an illustration for our journey through life. You know, Dickens being Dickens, he couldn't just tell us, hey, it's a tree and it's got pretty things on it. <laughs> but I've been thinking about our tree a lot lately and I know uh, my wife has been eyeing it with uh, the plans that it needs to come down soon. And maybe some of you have already taken it down or, or will be taking it down soon. But before we all do that, uh, I think it would be fun to, if we're able to sit next to the Christmas tree one last time, to contemplate what it means, what traditions and memories we've had around it. And I'll read you this Christmas story called A Christmas Tree by Charles Dickens.
first published in 1850. I have been looking on, this evening, at a merry company of children assembled round that pretty German toy, a Christmas tree. The tree was planted in the middle of a great round table and towered high above their heads. It was brilliantly lighted by a multitude of little tapers, and everywhere sparkled and glittered with bright objects. There were rosy-cheeked dolls hiding behind the green leaves, and there were real watches with movable hands, at least, and an endless capacity of being wound up, dangling from innumerable twigs. There were French polished tables, chairs, bedsteads, wardrobes, eight-day clocks, and various other articles of domestic furniture, wonderfully made, in tin, at Wolverhampton, perched among the boughs, as if in preparation for some fairy housekeeping. There were jolly, broad-faced little men, much more agreeable in appearance than many real men, and no wonder, for their heads took off and showed them to be full of sugar plums. There were fiddles and drums, there were tambourines, books, work boxes, paint boxes, sweetmeat boxes, peep show boxes, and all kinds of boxes. There were trinkets for the elder girls, far brighter than any grown-up gold and jewels. There were baskets and pincushions and all devices. There were guns, swords, and banners. There were witches standing in enchanted rings of pasteboard to tell fortunes. There were teetotums, humming tops, needle cases, pen wipers, smelling bottles, conversation cards, bouquet holders, real fruit made artificially dazzling with gold leaf, imitation apples, pears and walnuts crammed with surprises. In short, as a pretty child before me delightedly whispered to another pretty child, her bosom friend, there was everything and more. This motley collection of odd objects clustering on the tree like magic fruit and flashing back the bright looks directed towards it from every side, some of the diamond eyes admiring it were hardly on a level with the table, and a few were languishing in timid wonder on the bosoms of pretty mothers, aunts, and nurses, made a lively realization of the fancies of childhood, and set me thinking how all the trees that grow and all the things that come into existence on the earth have their wild adornments at that well-remembered time. Being now at home again, and alone, the only person in the house awake, my thoughts are drawn back, by a fascination which I do not care to resist, to my own childhood. I begin to consider what do we all remember best upon the branches of the Christmas tree of our own young Christmas days, by which we climbed to real life. Straight in the middle of the room, cramped in the freedom of its growth by no encircling walls or soon-reached ceiling, a shadowy tree arises, and, looking up into the dreamy brightness of its top, for I observe in this tree the singular property that it appears to grow downward towards the earth, I look into my youngest Christmas recollections. All toys at first, I find, up yonder, among the green holly and red berries, is the tumbler with his hands in his pockets who wouldn't lie down, but whenever he was put upon the floor, persisted in rolling his fat body about, until he rolled himself still, and brought those lobster eyes of his to bear upon me. When I affected to laugh very much, but in my heart of hearts was extremely doubtful of him. 
Close beside him is that infernal snuff-box, out of which there sprang a demonical counselor in a black gown, with an obnoxious head of hair, and a red-cloth mouth wide open, who was not to be endured on any terms, but could not be put away either. For he used, suddenly, in a highly magnified state, to fly out of mammoth snuff-boxes and dreams, when least expected. Nor is the frog with cobbler's wax on his tail far off, for there was no knowing where he wouldn't jump, and when he flew over the candle, and came upon one's hand with that spotted back, red on a green ground, he was horrible. The cardboard lady in a blue silk skirt, who was stood up against the candlestick to dance, and whom I see on the same branch, was milder and was beautiful. But I can't say as much for the larger cardboard man who used to be hung against the wall and pulled by a string. There was a sinister expression in that nose of his, and when he got his legs round his neck, which he very often did, he was ghastly and not a creature to be alone with. When did that dreadful mask first look at me? Who put it on, and why was I so frightened that the sight of it is an era in my life? It is not a hideous visage in itself. It is even meant to be droll. Why, then, were its stolid features so intolerable? Surely not because it hid the wearer's face. An apron would have done as much. And though I should have preferred even the apron away, it would not have been absolutely insupportable like the mask. Was it the immovability of the mask? The doll's face was immovable, but I was not afraid of her. Perhaps that fixed and set change coming over a real face infused into my quickened heart some remote suggestion and dread of the universal change that is to come on every face and make it still? Nothing reconciled me to it. No drummers from whom proceeded a melancholy chirping on the turning of a handle, no regiment of soldiers with a mute band taken out of a box and fitted, one by one, upon a stiff and lazy little set of lazy tongs, no old woman made of wires in a brown paper com composition cutting up a pie for two small children could give me a permanent comfort for a long time, nor was it any satisfaction to be shown the mask and see that it was made of paper or to have it locked up and be assured that no one wore it. The mere recollection of that fixed face, the mere knowledge of its existence anywhere, was sufficient to awake me in the night, all perspiration and horror, with, Oh, I know what's coming! Oh, the mask! I never wondered what the dear old donkey with the panniers, there he is, was made of, then. His hide was real to the touch, I re recollect. And the great black horse with the round red spots all over him, the horse that I could even get upon, I never wondered what had brought him to that strange condition, or thought that such a horse was not commonly seen at Newmarket. The four horses of no color next to him that went into the wagon of cheeses and could be taken out and stabled under the piano appear to have bits of fur tippet for their tails and other bits for their manes and to stand on pegs instead of legs, but it was not so when they were brought home for a Christmas present. They were all right, then. Neither was their harness unceremoniously nailed into their chests, as appears to be the case now. The tinkling works of the music cart, I did find out, to be made of quill, toothpicks, and wire. And I always thought that little tumbler in his shirt sleeves, perpetually swarming up one side of a wooden frame and coming down head foremost on the other, 
rather a weak-minded person, though good-natured, but the Jacob's Ladder, next to him, made of little squares of red wood that went flapping and clattering over one another, each developing a different picture, and the whole enlivened by small bells, was a mighty marvel and a great delight. Oh, the doll's house, of which I was not proprietor, but where I visited. I don't admire the houses of Parliament half so much as that stone-fronted mansion with real glass windows and doorsteps and a real balcony, greener than I ever see now, except at watering places, and even they afford but a poor imitation. And though it did open all at once, the entire front house, which was a blow, I admit, as cancelling the fiction of a staircase, it was but to shut it up again, and I could believe. Even open, there were three distinct rooms in it, a sitting-room and bedroom, elegantly furnished, best of all a kitchen with uncommonly soft fire-irons, a plentiful assortment of diminutive utensils, oh, the warming-pan, and a tin-man cook in a profile who was always going to fry two fish. What barmicide justice have I done to the noble feasts wherein the set of wooden platters figured, each with its own peculiar delicacy, as a ham or turkey glued tight on to it and garnished with something green, which I recollect as moss? Could all the temperance societies of these latter days, united, give me such a tea-drinking as I have had through the means of yonder little set of blue crockery, which really would hold liquid, it ran out of the small wooden cask, I recollect, and tasted of matches, and which made tea nectar. And of the two legs of the ineffectual little sugar-tongs did tumble over one another, and want purpose like Punch's hands. What does it matter? And if I did once shriek out, as a poisoned child, and the, strike the fashionable company with consternation, by reason of having drunk a little teaspoon, inadvertently dissolved in too hot tea— I was never the worse for it, except by a powder. Upon the next branches of the tree, lower down, hard by the green roller and miniature gardening tools, how thick the books begin to hang. Thin books in themselves at first, but many of them, and with deliciously smooth covers of bright red or green. What fat black letters to begin with. A was an archer and shot at a frog. Of course he was. He was an apple pie also, and there he is. He was a good many things in his time, was A, and so were most of his friends, except X, who had so little versatility that I never knew him to get beyond Xerxes or Xantype. Like Y, who was always confined to a yacht or a yew tree, and Z, condemned forever to be a zebra or a zany. But now the very tree itself changes and becomes a beanstalk the marvelous beanstalk up which Jack climbed to the giant's house. And now those dreadfully interesting double-headed giants with their clubs over their shoulders begin to stride along the boughs in a perfect throng, dragging knights and ladies home for dinner by the hair of their heads. And Jack, how noble, with his sword of sharpness and his shoes of swiftness. Again those old meditations come upon me as I gaze up at him, and I debate within myself whether there was more than one Jack, which I am loath to believe possible, or only one genuine, original, admirable Jack who achieved all the recorded exploits. Good for Christmas time is the ruddy color of the cloak, in which, the tree making a forest of itself for her to trip through with her little basket, little Red Riding Hood comes to me one Christmas Eve 
to give me information of the cruelty and treachery of that dissembling wolf who ate her grandmother, without making any impression on his appetite, and then ate her after making that ferocious joke about his teeth. She was my first love. I felt that if I could have married Little Red Riding Hood, I should have known perfect bliss. But it was not to be, and there was nothing for it but to look out the wolf in the Noah's Ark there and put him late in the procession on the table as a monster who was to be degraded. Oh, the wonderful Noah's Ark. It was not found seaworthy when put in a washing tub, and the animals were crammed in at the roof and needed to have their legs well shaken down before they could be got in, even there, and then, ten to one, but they began to tumble out at the door, which was but imperfectly fastened with a wire latch. But what was that against it? Consider the noble fly, a size or two smaller than the elephant. The ladybird, the butterfly, all triumphs of art. Consider the goose, whose feet were so small and whose balance was so indifferent that he usually tumbled forward and knocked down all the animal creation. Consider Noah and his family, like idiotic tobacco stoppers, and how the leopard struck the warm little fingers, and how the tails of the larger animals used gradually to resolve themselves into frayed bits of string. Hush! Again a forest and somebody up in a tree. Not Robin Hood, not Valentine, not the Yellow Dwarf. I have passed him and all Mother Bunch's wonders without mention, but an eastern king with a glittering scimitar and turban. By Allah, two eastern kings, for I see another looking over his shoulder. Down upon the grass at the tree's foot lies the full length of a coal-black giant, stretched asleep with his head in a lady's lap. And near them is a glass box, fastened with four locks of shining steel, in which he keeps the lady prisoner when he is awake. I see the four keys at his girdle now. The lady makes signs to the two kings in the tree, who softly descend. It is the setting in of the bright Arabian nights. Oh, now all common things become uncommon and enchanted to me. All lamps are wonderful. All rings are talismans. Common flower pots are full of treasure with a little earth scattered on the top. Trees are for Alibaba to hide in. Beefsteaks are to throw down into the Valley of Diamonds, that the precious stones may stick to them and be carried by the eagles to their nests, whence the traders, with loud cries, will scare them. Tarts are made according to the recipe of the vizier's son of Bussara, who turned pastry cook after he was set down in his drawers at the gate of Damascus. Cobblers are all Mustafa's, and in the habit of sewing up people cut into four pieces to whom they are taken blindfold. Any iron ring let into stone is the entrance to a cave which only waits for the magician, and the little fire and the necromancy that will make the earth shake. All the dates imported come from the same tree as that unlucky date, with whose shell the merchant knocked out the eye of the genie's invisible sun. All olives are of the stock of that fresh fruit, concerning which the commander of the faithful overheard the boy conduct the fictitious trial of the fraudulent olive merchant. All apples are akin to the apple purchased with two others from the sultan's gardener for three sequins, and which the tall servant stole from the child. All dogs are associated with the dog, really a transformed man, who jumped upon the baker's counter and put his paw on the piece of bad money. All rice recalls the rice which the awful lady, who is a ghoul, 
could only peck by grains because of her nightly feasts in the burial place. My very rocking horse, there he is with his nostrils turned completely inside out, indicative of blood, should have a peg in his neck, by virtue thereof to fly away with me, as the wooden horse did with the prince of Persia in the sight of all his father's court. Yes, on every object that I recognize among those upper branches of my Christmas tree, I see this fairy light. When I wake in bed at daybreak on the cold, dark winter mornings, the white snow dimly beheld outside through the frost of the window pane, I hear Dinarzad, Sister, sister, if you are yet awake, I pray you finish the history of the young king of the Black Islands. Shahrazad replies, If my lord the sultan will suffer me to live another day, sister, I will not only finish that, but tell you a more wonderful story yet. Then the gracious sultan goes out, giving no orders for the execution, and we all three breathe again. At this height of my tree I begin to see, cowering among the leaves, it may be born of turkey, or of pudding, or mince pie, or of these many fancies, jumbled with Robinson Crusoe on his desert island, Philip Quarrel among the monkeys, Sanford and Merton with Mr. Barlow, Mother Bunch in the mask, or it may be the result of indigestion assisted by imagination and overdoctoring, a prodigious nightmare. It is so exceedingly indistinct that I don't know why it's frightful, but I know it is. I can only make out that it is an immense array of shapeless things, which appear to be planted on a vast exaggeration of the lazy tongs that used to bear the toy soldiers, and to be slowly coming close to my eyes, and receding to an immeasurable distance. When it comes closest, it is worse. In connection with it, I decry remembrances of winter nights incredibly long, of being sent early to bed as a punishment for some small offense, and waking in two hours with a sensation of having been asleep two nights, of the laden hopelessness of morning ever dawning, and the oppression of a weight of remorse. And now I see a wonderful row of little lights rise smoothly out of the ground before a vast green curtain. Now a bell rings, a magic bell, which still sounds in my ears unlike all other bells, and music plays amidst a buzz of voices, and a fragrant smell of orange peel and oil. Anon, the magic bell commands the music to cease, and the great green curtain rolls itself up majestically, and the play begins. The devoted dog of Montargis avenges the death of his master, foully murdered in the forest of Bondi, and a humorous peasant with a red nose and a very little hat, whom I take from this hour forth to my bosom as a friend. I think he was a waiter or a hostler at a village inn, but many years have passed since he and I have met. Remarks that the sagacity of that dog is indeed surprising, and evermore this jocular conceit will live in my remembrance fresh and unfading, overtopping all possible jokes, unto the end of time. Or now I learn with bitter tears how poor Jane Shore, dressed all in white, and with her brown hair hanging down, went starving through the streets, or how George Barnwell killed the worthiest uncle that ever man had and was afterwards so sorry for it that he ought to have been let off. Comes swift to comfort me, the pantomime, stupendous phenomenon. When clowns are shot from loaded mortars into the great chandelier, bright constellation that it is, when harlequins covered all over with scales of pure gold twist and sparkle like amazing fish, when pantaloon 
whom I deem it no irreverence to compare in my own mind to my grandfather, puts red-hot pokers in his pocket and cries, Here's somebody coming! Or taxes the clown with petty larceny by saying, Now I sold you do it! But everything is capable with the greatest ease of being changed into anything. And nothing is but thinking makes it so. Now too I perceive my first experience of the dreary sensation often to return in afterlife of being unable next day to get back to the dull, settled world, of wanting to live forever in the bright atmosphere I have quitted, of doting on the little fairy with the wand like a celestial barber's pole, and pining for a fairy immortality along with her. Oh, she comes back in many shapes as my eye wanders down the branches of my Christmas tree, and goes as often and has never yet stayed by me. Out of this delight springs the toy theater. There it is with its familiar proscenium and ladies in feathers in the boxes, and all its attendant occupation with paste and glue and gum and watercolors in the getting up of the miller and his men and Elizabeth or the exile of Siberia. In spite of a few besetting accidents and failures, particularly an unreasonable disposition in the respectable Kelmar and some others, to become faint in the legs and double up at exciting points of the drama, a teeming world of fancy so suggestive and all-embracing that far below it on my Christmas tree I see dark, dirty, real theaters in the daytime adorned with these associations as with the freshest garlands of the rarest flowers and charming me yet. But hark, the weights are playing, and they break my childish sleep. What images do I associate with the Christmas music as I see them set forth on the Christmas tree? Known before all others, keeping far apart from all the others, they gather round my little bed. An angel speaking to a group of shepherds in a field, some travelers with eyes uplifted following a star, a baby in a manger, a child in a spacious temple, talking with grave men, a solemn figure with a mild and beautiful face, raising a dead girl by the hand, again near a city gate, calling back the son of a widow on his bier to life, a crowd of people looking through the opened roof of a chamber where he sits, and letting down a sick person on a bed, with ropes, the same in a tempest walking on the water to a ship, again on a seashore teaching a great multitude, again with a child upon his knee and other children round, again restoring sight to the blind, speech to the dumb, hearing to the deaf, health to the sick, strength to the lame, knowledge to the ignorant, again dying upon a cross, watched by armed soldiers, a thick darkness coming on, the earth beginning to shake, and only one voice heard, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Still, on the lower and maturer branches of the tree, Christmas associations cluster thick. School books shut up, Ovid and Virgil silenced, the rule of three with its cool and pertinent inquiries long disposed of. Terence and Plautus acted no more. In an arena of huddled desks and forms, all chipped and notched and inked, cricket bats, stumps, and balls left higher up, with the smell of trodden grass and the softened noise of shouts in the evening air. The tree is still fresh, still gay. If I no more come home at Christmas time, there will be boys and girls, thank heaven, while the world lasts, and they do. Yonder they dance and play upon the branches of my tree. God bless them, merrily, 
and my heart dances and plays too. And I do come home at Christmas. We all do, or we all should. We all come home, or ought to come home, for a short holiday. The longer, the better, from the great boarding school, where we are forever working at our arithmetical slates, to take and give a rest. As to going a-visiting, where can we not go, if we will? Where have we not been, when we would? Starting our fancy from our Christmas tree. Away into the winter prospect. There are many such upon the tree. On, by low-lying, misty grounds, through fens and fogs, up long hills, winding dark as caverns between thick plantations, almost shutting out the sparkling stars. So, out on broad heights, until we stop at last with sudden silence at an avenue. The gate bell has a deep, half-awful sound in the frosty air. The gate swings open on its hinges and, As we drive up to a great house, the glancing lights grow larger in the windows, and the opposing rows of trees seem to fall solemnly back on either side to give us place. At intervals all day, a frightened hare has shot across this whitened turf, or the distant clatter of a herd of deer trampling the hard frost has, for the minute, crushed the silence too. Their watchful eyes beneath the fern may be shining now, if we could see them, like the icy dewdrops on the leaves. But they are still, and all is still. And so the lights growing larger, and the trees falling back before us, and closing up again behind us, as if to forbid retreat, we come to the house. There is probably a smell of roasted chestnuts, and other good comfortable things all the time, for we are telling winter stories, ghost stories, or more shame for us, round the Christmas fire, and we have never stirred except to draw a little nearer to it. But no matter for that, we came to the house, and it is an old house full of great chimneys where wood is burnt on ancient dogs upon the hearth, and grim portraits, some of them with grim legends too, lower distrustfully from the oaken panels of the walls. We are a middle-aged nobleman, and we make a generous supper with our host and hostess and their guests it being Christmas time and the old house full of company. And then we go to bed. Our room is a very old room. It is hung with tapestry. We don't like the portrait of a cavalier in green over the fireplace. There are great black beams in the ceiling, and there is a great black bedstead supported at the foot by two great black figures who seem to have come off a couple of tombs in the old baronial church in the park for our particular accommodation. But... We are not a superstitious nobleman, and we don't mind. Well, we dismiss our servant, lock the door, and sit before the fire in our dressing gown, musing about a great many things. At length, we go to bed. Well, we can't sleep. We toss and tumble and can't sleep. The embers on the hearth burn fitfully and make the room look ghostly. We can't help peeping out over the counterpane at the two black figures in the cavalier, that wicked-looking cavalier, and green. In the flickering light, they seem to advance and retire, which, though we are not by any means a superstitious nobleman, is not agreeable. Well, we get nervous, more and more nervous. We say, this is very foolish, but we can't stand this. We'll pretend to be ill and knock up somebody. Well, we are just going to do it when the locked door opens and there comes in a young woman, deadly pale and with long fair hair, who glides to the fire and sits down in the chair we have left there, 
wringing her hands. Then we notice that her clothes are wet. Our tongue cleaves to the roof of our mouth and we can't speak. But we observe her accurately. Her clothes are wet. Her long hair is dabbled with moist mud. She is dressed in the fashion of two hundred years ago, and she has at her girdle a bunch of rusty keys. Well, there she sits, and we can't even faint. We are in such a state about it. Presently, she gets up and tries all the locks in the room with the rusty keys, which won't fit one of them. Then she fixes her eyes on the portrait of the cavalier in green and says in a low, terrible voice, The stags know it. After that, she wrings her hands again, passes the bedside, and goes out at the door. We hurry on our dressing gown, seize our pistols. We always travel with pistols, and are following when we find the door locked. We turn the key, look out into the dark gallery. No one there. We wander away and try to find our servant. Can't be done. We pace the gallery till daybreak, and then return to our deserted room, fall asleep, and are awakened by our servant. Nothing ever haunts him and the shining sun. Well, we make a wretched breakfast, and all the company say we look queer. After breakfast, we go over the house with our host, and then we take him to the portrait of the cavalier in green, and then it all comes out. He was false to a young housekeeper once attached to that family, and famous for her beauty, who drowned herself in a pond, and whose body was discovered after a long time, because the stags refused to drink of the water. Since which, it has been whispered that she traverses the house at midnight, but goes especially to that room where the cavalier in green was wont to sleep, trying the old locks with the rusty keys. Well, we tell our host of what we have seen, and a shade comes over his features, and he begs it may be hushed up, and so it is. But it's all true, and we said so. Before we died, we are dead now, to many responsible people. There is no end to the old houses, with resounding galleries and dismal state bedchambers and haunted wings shut up for many years, through which we may ramble, with an agreeable creeping up our back, and encounter any number of ghosts. But it is worthy of remark, perhaps, reducible to a very few general types and classes, for ghosts have little originality and walk in a beaten track. Thus it comes to pass that a certain room in a certain old hall where a certain bad lord, baronet, knight, or gentleman shot himself, has certain planks in the floor from which the blood will not be taken out. You may scrape and scrape as the present owner has done, or plain and plain as his father did, or scrub and scrub as his grandfather did, or burn and burn with strong acids as his great-grandfather did. But there the blood will still be, no redder and no paler, no more and no less, always just the same. Thus, in such another house, there is a haunted door that never will keep open, or another door that never will keep shut, or a haunted sound of a spinning wheel, or a hammer, or a footstep, or a cry, or a sigh, or a horse's tramp, or the rattling of a chain, or else there is a turret clock, which, at the midnight hour, strikes thirteen when the head of the family is going to die, or a shadowy, immovable black carriage, which at such a time is always seen by somebody waiting near the great gates in the stable-yard. Or thus it came to pass how Lady Mary went to pay a visit at a large wild house in the Scottish Highlands, and being fatigued with her long journey, retired to bed early, and innocently said, next morning, at the breakfast-table, How odd to have so late a party last night in this remote place, and not to tell me of it before I went to bed. Then every one asked Lady Mary what she meant, 
Then Lady Mary replied, Why, all night long, the carriages were driving round and round in the terrace, underneath my window. Then the owner of the house turned pale, and so did his lady, and Charles MacDoodle of MacDoodle signed to Lady Mary to say no more, and everyone was silent. After breakfast, Charles MacDoodle told Lady Mary that it was a tradition in the family that those rumbling carriages on the terrace betokened death. And so it proved, for, two months afterward, the lady of the mansion died. And Lady Mary, who was a maid of honor at court, often told this story to the old Queen Charlotte, by this token that the old king always said, Eh? Eh? What? What? Ghosts? Ghosts? No such thing! No such thing! And never left off saying so, until he went to bed. Or a friend of somebody's whom most of us know, when he was a young man at college, had a particular friend with whom he made the compact that, if it were possible for the spirit to return to this earth after its separation from the body, he of the twain who first died should reappear to the other. In course of time, this compact was forgotten by our friend, the two young men having progressed in life and taking diverging paths that were wide asunder. But one night, many years afterwards, our friend being in the north of England and staying for the night in an inn on the Yorkshire moors, happened to look out of bed, and there, in the moonlight, leaning on a bureau near the window, steadfastly regarding him, saw his old college friend. The appearance, being solemnly addressed, replied in a kind of whisper, but very audibly, Do not come near me. I am dead. I am here to redeem my promise. I come from another world, but may not disclose its secrets. Then the whole form, becoming paler, melted, as it were, into the moonlight, and faded away. Or there was the daughter of the first occupier of the picturesque Elizabethan house, so famous in our neighborhood. You have heard about her? No? Why, she went out one summer evening at twilight, when she was a beautiful girl, just seventeen years of age, to gather flowers in the garden, and presently came running, terrified, into the hall to her father, saying, Oh, dear father, I have met myself. He took her in his arms and told her it was fancy, but she said, Oh, no, I met myself in the broad walk, and I was pale and gathering withered flowers, and I turned my head and held them up. And that night she died and a picture of her story was begun, though never finished, and they say it is somewhere in the house to this day, with its face to the wall. Or, the uncle of my brother's wife was riding home on horseback one mellow evening at sunset, when, in a green lane close to his own house, he saw a man standing before him, in the very center of a narrow way. Why does that man in the cloak stand there? he thought. Does he want me to ride over him? But the figure never moved, he felt a strange sensation at seeing it so still, but slackened his trot and rode forward. When he was so close to it, as almost to touch it with a stirrup, his horse shied, and the figure glided up the bank in a curious, unearthly manner, backward and without seeming to use its feet, and was gone. The uncle of my brother's wife, exclaiming, "'Good heavens, it's my cousin Harry from Bombay!' put spurs to his horse, which was suddenly in a profuse sweat, and wondering at such strange behavior, dashed round to the front of his house. There he saw the same figure, just passing in at the long French window of the drawing-room, 
opening on the ground. He threw his bridle to a servant and hastened in after it. His sister was sitting there alone. Alice, where's my cousin Harry? Your cousin Harry, John? Yes, from Bombay. I met him in the lane just now and saw him enter here this instant. Not a creature had been seen by anyone. And in that hour and minute, as it afterwards appeared, this cousin died in India. Or it was a certain sensible old maiden lady who died at ninety-nine and retained her faculties to the last, who really did see the orphan boy, a story which has often been incorrectly told, but of which the real truth is this, because it is, in fact, a story belonging to our family, and she was a connection of our family. When she was about forty years of age, and still an uncommonly fine woman, her lover died young, which was the reason why she never married, though she had many offers. She went to stay at a place in Kent, which her brother, an Indian merchant, had newly bought. There was a story that this place had once been held in trust by the guardian of a young boy, who was himself the next heir, and who killed the young boy by harsh and cruel treatment. She knew nothing of that. It has been said that there was a cage in her bedroom in which the guardian used to put the boy. There is no such thing. There is only a closet. She went to bed, made no alarm whatever in the night, and in the morning said composedly to her maid when she came in, Who is the pretty forlorn-looking child who has been peeping out of that closet all night? The maid replied by giving a loud scream and instantly decamping. She was surprised, but she was a woman of remarkable strength of mind, and she dressed herself and went downstairs and closeted herself with her brother. Now, Walter, she said, I have been disturbed all night by a pretty, forlorn-looking boy who has been constantly peeping out of that closet in my room, which I can't open. This is some trick. I am afraid not, Charlotte, said he, for it is the legend of the house. It is the orphan boy. What did he do? He opened the door softly, said she, and peeped out. Sometimes he came a step or two into the room. Then I called to him to encourage him, and he shrunk and shuddered and crept in again and shut the door. The closet has no communication, Charlotte, said her brother, with any other part of the house, and it's nailed up. This was undeniably true, and it took two carpenters a whole forenoon to get it open for examination. Then she was satisfied that she had seen the orphan boy. But the wild and terrible part of the story is that he was also seen by three of her brother's sons in succession, who all died young. On the occasion of each child being taken ill, he came home in a heat twelve hours before and said, Oh, Mama! He had been playing under a particular oak tree in a certain meadow with a strange boy, a pretty, forlorn-looking boy who was very timid and made signs. From fatal experience, the parents came to know that this was the orphan boy and that the course of that child whom he chose for his little playmate was surely run. Legion is the name of the German castles, where we sit up alone to wait for the specter, where we are shown into a room made comparatively cheerful for our reception, where we glance round at the shadows and thrown on the blank walls by the crackling fires, where we feel very lonely when the village innkeeper and his pretty daughter have retired after laying down a fresh store of wood upon the hearth and setting forth on the small table such supper cheer as a cold roast capon, bread, grapes, and a flask of old Rhine wine, where the reverberating doors close on their retreat, one after another, 
like so many peals of sullen thunder, and where, about the small hours of the night, we come into the knowledge of diverse supernatural mysteries. Legion is the name of the haunted German students, in whose society we draw yet nearer to the fire, while the schoolboy in the corner opens his eyes wide and round and flies off the footstool he has chosen for his seat. When the door accidentally blows open, vast is the crop of such fruit shining on our Christmas tree, in blossom almost at the very top, ripening all down the boughs. Among the later toys and fancies hanging there, as idle often and less pure, be the images once associated with the sweet old waits, the softened music in the night, ever unalterable. Encircled by the social thoughts of Christmas time, still let the benign figure of my childhood stand unchanged. In every cheerful image and suggestion that the season brings, may the bright star that rested above the poor roof be the star of all the Christian world. A moment's pause, O vanishing tree, of which the lower boughs are dark to me as yet, let me look once more. I know there are blank spaces on thy branches, where eyes that I have loved have shone and smiled, from which they are departed. But far above, I see the razor of the dead girl, and the widow's son, and God is good. If age be hiding for me in the unseen portion of thy downward growth, O oh, may I, with a gray head, turn a child's heart to that figure yet, and a child's trustfulness and confidence. Now the tree is decorated with bright merriment, and song and dance and cheerfulness, and they are welcome. Innocent and welcome be they ever held beneath the branches of the Christmas tree, which cast no gloomy shadow. But as it sinks into the ground, I hear a whisper going through the leaves. This in commemoration of the law of love and kindness, mercy and compassion. This in remembrance of me. And that was A Christmas Tree by Charles Dickens. Now, I, I told you it was a little strange, <laughs> a little weird. As near as I can figure, and I've read the story a couple times now uh, over the years, that Dickens is reflecting on his Christmas tree and the toys that hang on it and the lights. And his memory begins to wander over his Christmas's past. The toys that would have been on it when he was a kid. The, the toys that he has vivid memories of. And as his eyes go up the tree, he thinks then of the next stage of his life when he would get books as presents. And he thinks about some of the books and stories that had an an important part in his young life. Those of you who have read um, the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights uh, or might be familiar with some of the stories that he alludes to. His eyes continue to travel up and he then reflects on the ghost stories he may have heard at Christmas time as they sit around the hearth and share scary ghost stories at uh, the Christmas time of year, which is what they did back then. Uh, and so then he shares some of those creepy ghost stories that he heard and then ends with uh, reflecting on memories of those who have passed. And all of this is done like this. And his eyes go to the to the star, perhaps the star on top and and what that represents. And, and all of this is to be done in remembrance of me. Well, who's the me of that story? I think Jesus, 
I'm not entirely positive on that note, although the text does have the me capitalized, which could be then it is referring to Jesus, but I don't know. I, I think it's it's an interesting piece of literature. And what I like about the story is how the Christmas tree can remind us of things. You know, perhaps they do remind us of Jesus and of the story of his birth. But perhaps it also reminds us of our family, of our friends, of stories from when we were kids, of our favorite stories, of the of the toys, of the of the books, of the time spent with family that has impacted us. This is what I love about our Christmas tree, that it reflects like a scrapbook, our life, the vacations we've taken, the memories we've we've shared, the accomplishments we've achieved during the year. And, and it's so fun to decorate. And, and even at, when we undecorate it, you know, it's like we're putting those memories away for the year uh, and we'll bring them out again. One of the things that makes Christmas so powerful is the stories behind it. The memories we make during it. Well, I hope this year that you have had a wonderful Christmas season full of happy memories joyful reunions and time to reflect on why you celebrate what for whatever reason you do i hope that you're able to do these things that's part of what makes christmas so fun i can't thank you all enough and i sound like a broken record at this point but thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, for leaving a rating, a review, for your financial support, for your uh, gifts. I, I received a couple of gifts this year from you listeners, some cards, Christmas cards. It's just been wonderful. So I'm looking forward to continuing to build this community. So we'll be back with the beginning of season three on January 24th. So not too long of a break here between episodes. I thought about going longer, but I I just couldn't wait. So January 24th, we'll be back, if not sooner, with the premiere of season three. If you have a Christmas memory or tradition you want to share or a topic you'd love to hear me cover in an upcoming episode, let me know. Reach out to me at CozyChristmasPodcast at gmail.com. Remember to find a book to read that has to do with family. And let's talk about our favorite family-related books coming this Wednesday. We're going to start our reading Wednesdays, and let's talk about what we're reading and what book you might pick for this prompt, this reading prompt. And as always, be kind to each other and do good. Remember that there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. So I hope you and your family have the merriest and happiest of new years. And I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care.